This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in heart care 25 years in a row. Learn more at clevelandclinic.org care. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 5th. Today, what the hell is happening with Brexit? How a federal rule change could devastate women's clinics and a ride-along with West Africa's new delivery service. It's been just crazy town here. It's been just a wild week here. When I got off the plane last week, I went immediately to protest. It's been a crazy time in politics. Mr. Speaker, I'm, I'm a, 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 as you know, I'm a, very, a, keen, a keen fan and a, a lifelong fan. Of, 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 I want to hear what the... Oh, no, what it, what, oh, sit down. Sit down. I'm, I'm very grateful. My name is Kevin Sullivan. I'm a senior correspondent for The Washington Post, and I'm a former London bureau chief for The Washington Post. And where are you right now? I am in London. I've been in London for about a week watching what's been going on here. If you can start back at the beginning of this week, for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, what was he setting out to do? Well, a week ago, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson said he was going to suspend Parliament for five weeks. And he did it at a time when Britain is debating, you know, maybe the biggest decision since World War II, certainly the biggest decision for this country in many, many decades. And that's the decision to leave the European Union through Brexit. This is what set up these protests that I was talking about. People were out in the street accusing Johnson of a coup. They were saying he was undemocratic. They were saying that he was attacking, you know, the most storied historic democracy on the planet through this move. And so how did Parliament start responding? Well, Parliament was not happy. His opponents, led by Jeremy Corbyn, who's the leader of the Labour Party, the biggest opposition party, started trying to work against him legislatively. They came back. When when Johnson did this, Parliament was on its summer recess. They hadn't been in for a bit. So they came back on Tuesday and they put a bunch of bills in motion that had to do with Brexit. And they were basically challenging Johnson to to try to stop them. They, they, they were trying to get some action on Brexit before this parliamentary suspension went into effect. What did these bills actually aim to do? And did any of them get passed? Basically, this legislation was saying you can't allow a no-deal Brexit to happen without Parliament's approval. Now, Parliament would never give that approval, so basically it's just telling him that he can't do it. And they're also looking for a three-month delay. Instead of having Brexit on October 31st, what they want to do is have it um, have the new deadline be the end of January. So it would give more time to negotiate a, a deal so that we don't have a no-deal Brexit. And does this legislation have widespread support, or would the prime minister's party be able to stop it from being passed? So here's here's the issue. So the Labor Party and a lot of the opposition parties are trying to are trying to pass this bill, and Johnson's Conservative Party, generally speaking, would like to defeat it. However, um, there are a lot of people in the Conservative Party 
who are against this no deal Brexit and they are abandoning ship. They're rebelling against uh, the prime minister. Even though they're in his political party. Right. So 21 members of Johnson's own political party, the conservatives, voted against him in parliament this week. Um, It was a rebellion like we've kind of really never seen before. It was just it was remarkable. Um, And they were able to this bill has passed now. Uh, So this bill is these couple of procedural hurdles left. But basically, the bill is going to pass and it's going to pass because of the support of these rebels from within the conservative party who turned on the prime minister. The prime minister's reaction to that has been something else that's created a lot of controversy here. He's basically excommunicated those 21 people. He's expelled them from the party. Oh, my gosh. And told them that they cannot stand in any further uh, general elections as a candidate from the conservative party. So who are these people that have defected from Boris Johnson's side? Well, some of the people who have done this are some of the, the grandest, most experienced, most honored people in the Conservative Party, uh, there are two of them who were former finance ministers here. These are just some of the most respected people in the party, including, remarkably, the grandson of Winston Churchill. Wow. There's a legislator named Nicholas Soames. He's 71 years old. His grandfather was Churchill. Um, he is a beloved, experienced figure who's been in the Conservative Party forever. He's been in Parliament, I think, for almost 40 years And he voted against Johnson, and Johnson kicked him out of the party. I want to make clear that I have always believed that the referendum result must be honoured, and indeed I voted for the withdrawal agreement on every occasion that has been presented to the House, which is more than can be said for my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, the Leader of the House, and other members of the Cabinet, whose serial disloyalty has been such an inspiration to so many of us. (laughs) Mr Speaker... And you have to remember that Winston Churchill is an, an, is an idol for Boris Johnson. He wrote a book about him. He wrote a biography of him. He sort of fancies himself a modern-day Churchill. So things have really gotten personal. Things have gotten personal, and they got a lot more personal um, this morning when Boris Johnson's younger brother, Joe Johnson, who's also a member of parliament and a minister in the government, quit. So great is the gulf now between what was promised in the referendum campaign and what is now on offer in the Prime Minister's proposed deal, that I have had no choice but to submit my resignation to the Prime Minister this afternoon. He sent out a tweet saying that he had to choose between family, you know, family relations and and national loyalty. And he thought that they were irreconcilable in this case. So he said specifically that he's quitting because, because of his brother, because he doesn't believe that his brother is doing a good job. That's exactly what he said. Now, they, you know, it's an interesting family, and Joe Johnson is someone who people admire, uh, and he, his views about, about Brexit and a number of other things are, are, are quite well known. And he's always been, he and his brother clearly have ideological differences, but the idea that this would bubble up to a situation where Joe Johnson felt like he could no longer in good conscience serve in his brother's government is absolutely remarkable. People were stunned this morning when Joe Johnson decided to resign. Well, so the fact that you have both this legislation that seems to be making its way through Parliament that would stand in opposition to the prime minister, and then the fact that you have these 21 members who basically defected from from the party or defected from from Boris Johnson's plan, together, does that basically say that people in Parliament do not have any confidence that 
this new prime minister is steering Brexit in the right direction? Well, some of them do. I mean, he, he has a lot of supporters, but it's becoming very, very clear that there are more people who who are opposed to him. And he now, before the voting started this week on Tuesday, he had a working majority of one in in the parliament meaning he had a, he, you know he, he he could win a vote he could win a vote if everybody stayed on party lines by one vote by the end of it he was down 43 um so meaning if the other parties in parliament all got together and voted for something they would beat the conservatives by 43 votes which is remarkable so he doesn't really have a majority in parliament anymore so the result of a lot of this, what, what has come out of this, is that now the big debate is about having a new early election. And I hate banging on about Brexit. I don't want to go on about this anymore. And I don't, I don't want an election at all. I don't want an election at all. But frankly, I cannot see any other way. The only way uh, to get this thing done, to get this thing moving, is to make that decision. Johnson has said he will not delay after beyond October 31st. So he wants to he wants to put this to the British public and say, you know, I want Brexit, my opponents want a delay, you have to we have to vote. You know, we have to have a vote to decide this. I want a mandate from the people. So he is pushing very very hard to have a general election on October 15th, which they could just about pull off logistically. If there is an election in October, right before the Brexit deadline, is there a possibility that that election would end with the outcome of Boris Johnson not being prime minister anymore and that he would only have been prime minister for a few months before getting kicked out? Boris Johnson is in danger of being one of the shortest, if not the shortest, lived prime ministers in the history of the UK. Do you want this government to take us out on October the 31st, or do you want Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party to go to that crucial summit in Brussels on October the 17th, effectively hand over control to the EU and keep us in beyond October the 31st? I, I think it's a no-brainer. I'm sorry to bring this painful subject up this afternoon, but that is the reality of what we face. So after all of this, is there a sense of whether all of these events that have transpired over the last week, whether they will make it more or less likely that there will be a no-deal Brexit? I think that it would be hard to say definitively one way or the other about that. There is a deadline. October 31st is coming, and if nothing happens, Britain is out. And right now there is no deal. Um, Boris Johnson says that while all this is going on, he's making, his people are quietly making progress in negotiations with the EU to try to come up with some sort of a deal before October 31st, you know, despite all of this that's been happening back here in, in London. But we talked to some people in the EU this morning who say we don't know what he's talking about because there really aren't any kind of substantial negotiations going on. So... The whole thing's a bit of a muddle. I don't think anyone knows at this point. We're, we're, everyone is looking for some clarity, and we're hoping that we might get a little bit of that um, over the coming days. Kevin, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Kevin Sullivan is a senior correspondent for The Washington Post. Earlier this year, the Trump administration changed the rules around Title X, a federal program that gives money to family planning clinics. In response, Planned Parenthood and other smaller clinics decided to opt out of that federal funding. 
What Planned Parenthood has that a lot of these smaller, independent networks of clinics don't have is this massive war chest of funding. I'm Caroline Kitchener. I'm a staff writer for The Lily. She says this change will have the biggest effect on smaller health clinics. You know, we've seen over the past year, whenever abortion rights are at risk, there is a huge amount of money that goes directly to Planned Parenthood because people know, hey, I want to protect abortion rights. I know that one of the fiercest, if not the fiercest advocate for abortion rights out there is Planned Parenthood. So that's where I'm going to give my money. You don't get that with a lot of these independent clinics. So the network of clinics that I focused on for the story is called Maine Family Planning, the largest provider of reproductive health care for women in the state of Maine. So if you live in Maine, you know, it might make sense that instead of giving to Planned Parenthood, you might give to Maine Family Planning. But that's not what you see because Planned Parenthood has this huge network of communications folks and events folks, and it's just so much more visible, even to people in a state where 18 of the 20 clinics are not Planned Parenthood. So when we talk about Title X and the funding that is pro- provided to healthcare clinics for women, what, what actually is Title X, what does it do, and what is this funding for? Title X basically is a bunch of money that The federal government gives out to various reproductive health clinics that is specifically supposed to go to birth control, STD testing, breast exams, all manner of preventative reproductive health care, not abortion. So why are these clinics choosing to not take money from the federal government? So the Trump administration came out with a rule basically saying that in order to accept Title X funding and use Title X funding, clinics have to pledge not to talk to their patients about abortion, not to refer them to get an abortion, um, not to talk to them about any kind of abortion providers in the area or abortions that they might be providing themselves at the clinic. This has sort of become known as Trump's, quote-unquote, gag rule. And a lot of clinics are saying, well, We can't do that. We can't ethically and morally have pregnant patients come in and not talk to them about every single one of their options. That goes against our code of ethics as doctors and nurse practitioners. That in in their minds, they have a medical obligation to be able to talk about not only birth control, but things like abortion if somebody is pregnant as an option for them. Exactly. And so I spoke with Kate Vaughn, who is the community organizer for Maine Family Planning, and she called Trump's gag rule basically a false choice. As soon as the draft rule came out, we, um, Maine Family Planning, we knew that this was bad news. Um, Would it be possible for us to provide ethical, quality, comprehensive care to our patients or not? Yeah. Um, And the answer was no. You've seen just a huge number of these clinics, both independent clinics and Planned Parenthood clinics, say it's not worth it. We can't do that. It forced this, you know, choice between continuing to uphold access to abortion and provide top-notch, you know, contraceptive care. You know, it's a fake it's a fake dichotomy that birth control's over here and abortions over here. You know, reproductive freedom and agency really requires that people have access to both of those things. Right. And to all of their options and all of the information, the medical information we can provide. Maine is the most rural state 
in the entire country. It's also one of the most low-income states in the whole country. And Maine Family Planning's clinics are kind of dotted across mostly these very, very rural, very remote areas. So the patients very often do not have insurance. I spoke with nurse practitioners at the most rural clinics in the state. And, you know, they they told me that their patients are hairdressers, they're nail technicians, they're bartenders, they're waitresses. They often work for companies that do not give them insurance. So they really rely very heavily on this funding that comes from Title X. And so what are they going to do now that they don't have that funding? So I spoke with the lawyer who is representing Maine Family Planning, trying to sue and say, hey, you can't implement this this gag rule. And she thinks it's possible that as many as 15 of their 20 clinics will shut down as a direct result of this. What I think is really interesting about this gag rule for Title X and the way that clinics are responding to that is that it seems like there are all these ways that the Trump administration is trying to pick away at little parts of of women's access to abortion clinics that even if there's not a a sweeping Supreme Court order that eliminates Roe v. Wade, that if you start making it harder and harder in various states for women to have access to abortion clinics or for clinics to stay open, then that almost effectively does the same thing. Definitely. And I mean, I think a lot of the people that I spoke to, the nurse practitioners and and the people who work for Maine Family Planning, they they recognize that. They realize that Issuing a gag rule like this is effectively the same as, you know, issuing a rule that says all these clinics have to shut down. It is going for the clinics that need this funding the most, knowing that they will have to close. Did you talk to anyone who receives services from from some of these clinics about what they're going to do now if— they don't have the ability to go to a local clinic where they live? I did. I talked to a 23-year-old nursing student, and she had been to Maine Family Planning to get an IUD, um, would have usually cost about $500. She had to pay $100, so she never would have been able to get that kind of contraception if she hadn't have had that subsidized funding. Her name is Lovely Jordan. To be honest, like I'm so grateful that it wasn't that much money because I don't want to have to choose between, you know, paying my rent or getting sustainable birth control so I don't get pregnant. You want to have some kind of control. You know, in a world in which main family planning shuts down, she really didn't know what her options would be. Getting birth control, getting an abortion, anything, it would just become exponentially more difficult. Caroline Kitchener is a staff writer for The Lily. And now, one more thing. From a van making deliveries in the Ivory Coast. My name is Danielle Paquette, and I'm the West Africa Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. I recently visited the Ivory Coast to take a look at Africa's growing e-commerce scene. As of today, only 1% of purchases on the continent are made online. Companies like Jumia are trying to change that, but they keep bumping up against one big obstacle. Addresses are extremely rare. 
In order to overcome that, we have developed quite a number of tools to make it possible to have millions of packages flowing from the vendors to the consumers. Jumia was founded seven years ago by two French entrepreneurs in Nigeria. My name is Sasha. I'm the co-CEO and co-founder of Jumia. It's been called the Amazon of Africa, even though it's steered by Europeans. The digital marketplace operates in 14 countries, and it's the biggest on the continent, with about 4 million active users. The company relies on local delivery agents like Vivian Lakpa. I say agent because she works side by side with a former taxi driver. Most of her customers live somewhere no GPS could locate, so Vivian's job is to stay on the phone in the front seat all day, trying to figure out where people are and what time they can meet. She let me climb into the back of their Mazda van one recent morning. There was just enough room between all the printers, shoe racks, phones, soap, you name it. Then we went off down paved highways and bumpy dirt roads. Vivian told me she usually skips lunch. Workers like her have eight hours to deliver all of their goods. Sometimes she doesn't take bathroom breaks for hours. At 4 p.m., they have to get off the roads because of the company's security rules. The delivery teams carry a lot of cash since credit cards are rare in the Ivory Coast. Uh, this also means no delivery is complete until a customer trusts Vivian enough to pay her. I watched a lawyer open his new electronic kettle, fill it with water, and plug it into the wall to see if it actually worked before handing her any cash. And sometimes people change their mind about an order before she can reach them. Sometimes they don't answer their phone at all. So this all slows her down. When I was with her, she and her partner delivered just three packages in three hours. Still, she was hyper-focused and patient with her customers. She says she needs patience and creativity to succeed in this line of work. She gets paid the same amount, even if nothing gets delivered. But she wants to build a career in the world of online shopping. It pays much better than selling ginger juice out of her house. She told me she thinks it's the future. When Jumia started here, there was interest but little impact. Drivers were delivering maybe 100 packages a day that first year. Now that figure can hit 30,000 after a big sale. The ultimate goal, business leaders say, is to unleash an economic boom in a new age of convenience on the continent. Danielle Puckett is the post-West Africa bureau chief. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, a story about Black pregnancy and how Black women are trying to find joy despite scary statistics about maternal mortality. You know, women are dying. Black women are dying more. Most women who go into a hospital to have a baby are going to come out safe and healthy, right? The problem being, for those women who don't, they disproportionately look like me. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.